0: little thin today, but the faithful came, huh? How about that? Amen. No, they're all faithful. They're just having fun, so that's great. Um, Well, we just started last week a new series, and uh, so if this is your first Sunday, welcome, welcome. You'll you'll not miss much. Uh, We have been, uh, we're looking in these next few weeks at this unusual section that we find in the book of Revelation. So I don't know if you've ever read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, kind of in Christian circles, is pretty intimidating uh, because it's written in a different style of writing that we don't find in the New Testament. We kind of find in the Old Testament. And so for many people, it's ones that just kind of like, let's just let's just trust God. Like, let's not read that because it's sometimes pretty confusing. But there's an interesting section in the beginning of this letter that John writes. Uh, exiled on the island of Patmos in the year 95 AD. He's the last living apostle, known apostle at this time. And he's been uh, exiled by Domitian, the emperor. And uh, he has this revelation from God. And the beginning of this revelation, it's 21 chapters. It's a long through a series of days and weeks that God gives to John. But at the beginning of this, God gives John Uh, uh, seven uh, letters or seven words of encouragement, either encouragement or rebuke, to seven churches in Asia Minor. And it's just chapter two to four. And that's what we're going to focus on, is what is Jesus saying to these churches in the first century? And I think we're going to glean a lot for us here in the 21st century about maybe what God's saying to us as well. And so uh, that's the kind of the context of this whole series. And so last week we covered uh, God's word of encouragement to Ephesians. The Ephesian church, this is about 35 years after the epistle of uh, Ephesus or the, uh, the letter to Ephesus by Paul. Uh, so it's about 35 years. So when you think about it, it's about 65 years from the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It's almost a whole generation, even more than a generation. Generations kind of thought of in 40 years. And so there's, a, there's quite a distance in between. Jesus' death and resurrection, even what we kind of find in Acts and John's letter to these churches. Some some things have developed in these churches that God needs to come and give a word of encouragement or rebuke to. And so last week we looked at the uh, church of Ephesians. They had lost their first love, and so God is calling them back to their first love. And so today we're going to look at the next church in Smyrna. So let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for these words to these churches. Father, that we could hear as they would have heard it. Father, I let our ears also be percolated to, God, what you're saying to us today. Father, that you have called your people to be set apart and made holy by your Holy Spirit and by your Word. And Father, we're just here, we're we're wanting direction, we're wanting guidance from your Holy Spirit and your Word as to how to live in this generation. And so, Father, we pray that your Word would speak clearly to us, no matter where we're at with you. God, that your Word would penetrate our calloused heart and let us hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's dive in. There's Four verses. We got four verses this morning, so praise the Lord. Um, Revelation 2.8. Write this letter. This is Jesus speaking to John and saying this. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, last week, we looked at that word angel. It could be referenced to a literal angel over that church, but it also could be referring to the pastor or the bishop over that church. So anyway, so I write this letter. This is the audience to the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, the one who is dead but is now alive. He wants you. He wants the church in Smyrna to realize this is who's giving this message to you. This message is from the one who's the first and the last, recapturing this grand vision of reality and of God over all of life. Reminds me of what Paul said in Colossians one. He says. For He, Jesus, rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. What's that mean? If you want to know who God the Father is, look at Jesus. He's the perfect representation. He mirrors God the Father perfectly. And He goes on, He existed before everything, anything was created in the supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before everything, anything else. He holds all creation together. Christ is the head of the church, which is His body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And this is who's speaking to you, Church of Smyrna. He is the author and finisher of your faith. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the one who has died and is now alive. This victorious king over everything is the one coming to you and giving you words of encouragement. Verse 9. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Now what's going on here? We don't have too much commentary as to what's going on in Smyrna other than Jesus' words of encouragement to Smyrna. And so what can we can kind of gather or glean from what's going on in this church? There seems to be an enemy in the camp or in the tent of the church that's opposing Jesus' true church here in Smyrna. So, there, And they must be suffering. I see her suffering and poverty, the connection between suffering and poverty is found in the likelihood that their goods had been taken, their plundered, due to persecution in their faith. And so they may, and and the the word poverty, it's abject, destitute poverty. It's not just kind of like, hey, you didn't have a meal, you know, today. This is destitute poverty. I see your suffering and your destitute poverty. Why would that be? Probably because of the persecution that was coming upon the church not just by outside Rome, but by Jews that, for some reason, it says, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. Meaning, blasphemy is you take upon God's name in vain, and you blaspheme, you do things that aren't representative of his name. That's what blaspheming is, taking upon God's name and acting as if you're under his authority or in his authority. And according to Roman law, This was interesting. Religions were considered illegal outside of their country of origin in Roman law. If Rome came in and kind of conquered your nation, uh, religions were considered illegal outside their country of origin. The only exception, the only exception to this law was Judaism. Judaism had a special kind of carved out law for them. They could practice their religion in any country any territory under Rome. So they had a kind of protection by Rome. Christians were probably considered a part of Judaism from the eyes of Rome until 70 AD, when Rome came in and and sacked Jerusalem and demolished the temple. They would have likely, at that time, Jews would have disassociated themselves from Christians. Christians. And so it's widely accepted that these blasphemers from the synagogue of Satan, synagogue meaning a Jewish house of worship, these guys, Paul lets us know who these guys are. They actually, as Paul was kind of expanding the church in the first century, there's a group of people that would always follow Paul around. And as Paul would come in and he'd preach and he'd lay some strong foundations of how God thinks, his word, good foundations, and then they'd go off to the next church, this group would come in behind Paul and begin preaching a different gospel than what Paul just brought. And they would say they were called Judaizers. And they thought that they were followers of Jesus, but yet they thought that because Jesus was Jewish and Jesus fulfilled the law, that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you must be fully Jewish. I mean, it kind of makes sense. And so uh, there was this belief that uh, if you wanted to be a follower of Jesus, you had to come under the Old Covenant as well and, and f- come under the 613 laws of the Old Testament. All the men would have to be circumcised. All these things would have to happen in your life if you were to wanted to be a true follower of Jesus. And Paul is saying, "No, that's perverting the gospel. Jesus came to do everything that you couldn't do because you're imperfect." And so no matter how hard you try, no matter how just no matter how many new year's resolutions or how like many mornings you wake up and today's the day. It's like we un- God understands that we're so fickle and we're broken and there's nothing that we could have done. And so these Judaizers are chasing, kind of chasing the true Christians around and trying to pervert the gospel. Paul is saying, no, Jesus' sacrifice was completely sufficient and fulfilled the law. And therefore, come and follow him under God's new covenant, led by the Holy Spirit, not by the written word, but by the living spirit that operates in your life. Jesus used the word ekklesia for his church. So there's the synagogue of Satan, these Jews that are trying to pervert the gospel, and then Jesus used this word ekklesia. And it was actually a Roman term, a Greek term, brought from Greece and now used in Rome. And the word ekklesia means called out ones set apart to rule called out ones, set apart to rule. The ecclesia in a Roman town were city leaders that would meet to discuss the destiny of that town, the future of that city. That was the ecclesia. And so when Jesus says, you're my ecclesia, meaning that you're my representative authority in this city, and you need to have care and compassion for the destiny of the city upon which I've given you. You're my Ecclesia, but these guys were trying to pervert God's true church. Then it says in verse 10, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. The devil will throw some of you into prison and test you, to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you The crown of life. Man, this must have been really bad. not, Not only experiencing suffering and poverty and persecution, but more is on its way. More is coming. And here's this word of encouragement. I'm with you. I see what's happening. Be faithful. Even when facing death, be faithful and you'll get the crown of life. Everlasting life. This verse and encouragement from God seemed strange at first to our ears to hear. I know when I was first following God, and this, the things about suffering, things about pain, things about trouble and persecution, where I came from, that was things you would run away from. And it's almost as if, you know, after the Enlightenment, many key thinkers started shifting from a God-oriented worldview of how the world is and how we are, and we shifted it to man, a world without God. And if this is a world without God, then really the meaning of life is this. Pursue as much pleasure out of life as you can. And at the same time, run away from as much pain as possible. Run away from it. Don't go through it. Don't navigate through it just run away. And we see kind of the condition that we have in our generation, like that's the ethos by which guides us. Pursue pleasure. If it's pleasurable, it's good. If it makes you happy, it's good. If it brings you down, if it's depressing, if it uh, brings you sadness, if it brings pain in your life, avoid it at all cost. But when, as a young follower of Jesus, I would read words like this, Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're of God, the spirit of the world hates you. And it wants to destroy your life. Matthew 10, Jesus said this again, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's such an interesting phrase, right? Be wise as serpents, meaning have the wherewithal of what the enemy is doing and how deceptive he is. Be aware of the lies that he's uttering from his kingdom, but yet be innocent as doves. Be shrewd as serpents. And in your interaction with the world, don't be naive and ignorant. These people are diabolical and evil. So have eyes about you that has wisdom, but yet in your heart, clean conscience, sincere faith. That's good. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. To bear witness. Suffering persecution to bear witness to who God is. Or how about 1 Peter? 1 Peter, the one who of all the disciples was probably the knuckleheadedest. That's not even a word. We just made that up Memorial Day weekend. Knuckleheadedness. And he's the one that when it came to Jesus' trial and crucifixion, he didn't have enough boldness to even stand up to say that he was a follower of Jesus to a middle school girl. And then he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's, he's the one that stands up in Acts and preaches the gospel to the crowd. And this, this one who was also martyred upside down on a cross because he didn't want the dignity to be justified like Christ. So he said, do it upside down. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. As you kind of dive into the scriptures and you see Jesus' life and you see his words of encouragement about standing strong in the midst of persecution, in the midst of resistance, in the midst of ungodly people that push, will always push, always, every generation, push against the things of God. Don't be surprised. Don't let it catch you off guard. And as I'm reading this as a young believer, I'm starting to think, man, maybe God's value system is different than the value system of the world. Like maybe he sees people, especially those who don't have as much money, looks, influence, success, health, whatever. Maybe he sees people, especially those people, as more valuable than you've ever imagined. Maybe he leverages suffering to awake our cold, rebellious hearts to turn to him. Maybe he uses suffering to teach us more about him and his heart in moments where things aren't really great around us. But maybe suffering gives us new lenses of how to greater love others because we've experienced a pain and a suffering. It opens up our hearts The compassion, because you have eyes to see, almost supernaturally, people that have gone through the same battle. And it gives your heart love for people under that weight. Maybe he gets deep into our hearts and we get deeper and closer to his in times of trial and tribulation. Maybe when the world sees the suffering of a true follower of Jesus, the power of darkness diminishes. For some, persecutions could awake even the most coldest of pagan hearts, of those that endure like Christ in moments like that. Therefore, God encourages them to remain faithful in the midst of trials. He mentioned an end. You may be thrown into prison, but 10 days worth. Meaning, why 10 days? It was a literal 10 days. Is it a metaphorical 10 days. Don't really know. We kind of lean on the literal 10 days, but in a sense of, there's going to be an end. There's going to be a reprieve. So, in the midst of that, stand strong. You've kind of uh, this is unplanned, but uh, this week I, I was reminded of an old uh, science experiment with mice. And uh, you're probably familiar with it, but um, you you take a, a mouse and you put it in a bucket of water and you just see how long they can last and. You're gonna have to do a little uh, digging on making sure my my figures are right. but um, like the mouse couldn't last very long, maybe like an hour. but then uh, the the scientist did another thing like right before it quit it lifted it out. so okay you got the baseline could last about an hour okay let's let's build on that. So that's our uh, original and Uh, What if we just pick him up right after he quits and we bring him out and we dry him off and we let him rest and let him get his kind of breath again and then let's put him back in. Amazing thing happened. Not only did he keep going over an hour, not only three hours, he kept going for like 15 hours just on his own because he knew in his head Hey, if I just keep going, I'm going to get rescued at some point. And here's what God's doing with the people of the church in Smyrna. Like, don't give up. Endure. Because there's an end in sight. If you remain faithful, even when facing death, he gives them this promise. I'll give you the crown of life. Remain faithful. Endure. Don't give up. The faithfulness that comes... This promise, you're adopted in and found faithful to the king of kings' family. Wow, what an amazing thing to have. Revelation 2.11. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death whoever is victorious, who's ever faithful to the end will not be hurt by the second death. So you'll not only be victorious over the world, you'll be victorious over hell itself. The place where you and I are destined to go because of our rebellion, because of our brokenness, he rescues us. An eternal separation from God because of our rebellion, that's what all of us are, we're destined for. That's what all of humanity is destined for. And sometimes we think, man, Jesus just came to be kind of a nice teacher. You know, it's got got good morals. You know, I kind of like him. He's kind of an anti-establishment guy, you know. There's a little side of me that I really like that. And it's like, I don't know. Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy that had way past got us to trade in our eternal glory for hope that maybe we could get wise as God. And when we did that, it, it severed an eternal separation in our hearts from a holy God. The promise to the overcomer is given to all those who come in faith in Christ. They need not fear the second death, being cast into the lake of fire. And sometimes we, we try to avoid things like this because in our American culture, it's like, hey, everything's okay, just don't bring us down. It's like, no, 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 do you not understand that sin, rebellion, pride, rebelliousness, just has, is destroying culture? It's not building it up. It's not building anything. It's tearing things down. Revelation 12.1, man, who are these people in the lake? It says, but the cowardly unbelieving, corrupt murderers, sexual immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idolaters, and all liars, their fate is the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So those who are in Christ will never be found there, ever. For it is this reason that Christ came to destroy this wall of separation between humanity and God. And that is why it's not us bringing anything much to the table of God. It's like, oh, Jesus, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you, God, I repent of my sin. I repent of my rebellion. I repent of my pride because that is the thing that's been getting in the way in between you and me. Not your distance, not a fault of your own. It has everything to do with the guy who's speaking. Yahweh did it on account of his love for creation to rescue you from the fate of all. Like, we're all destined for this. That's why he came, to bring you into eternal life. Look to Jesus, our king, who endured everything. I mean, when you think about, like, what he endured, almost every human experience that one could, in, in, like, experience, Jesus experienced it. You've been betrayed? Jesus done that, too. Um, you know, your, your best friends lie to you? Yeah, Jesus had that, that, that happen, too. I mean, you almost go through every life experience of Jesus, and it's just like, man, that encapsulates all of humanity. He knows the battle, and he knows how to win. He knows the pain, but he also knows the victory. So therefore, endure. Powerful words to a suffering church. One of the church fathers, his name was Ignatius. He was mentored by many of the apostles. And he wrote in his epistle to the Smyrnaians, he recognized the ongoing zeal of this church, even though they were under persecution for a long time. And we're going to look at an example of a man named Polycarp, who was probably a leader at this time that John was writing into the church. He may not have been bishop at the time. But this church. In, is, is going to endure tremendous persecution and suffering for decades. But this is what he said about them. He said, I observe that you are established in an unshakable faith, having been nailed, as it were, to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in both body and spirit and firmly established in love by the blood of Christ. It's this word of encouragement that even though you've gone through some dark times, some suffering, some persecution together, even people being martyred in your midst, I've seen that spirit, and it reflects a crucified Christ. There's no words of rebuke to this church. It's one of this in Philadelphia. Don't get a word of a a rebuke. It's because they're under it. Only that God, the God of the universe is seeing you and encouraging you to stay steadfast and endure. Now, like I said, some think that Polycarp was in leadership at this time. But he was a leader that was discipled by the Apostle John, the one who was writing. He was a devout and faithful follower of Jesus. He was revered in Smyrna and the surrounding areas as being a devout, wholeheartedly holy man of God. but I want to read from what was written about his life and how he got arrested and how he got martyred. I feel like this story is a tremendous, powerful story that I think all of us. He comes from this church in Smyrna. And I'm sure that these words of Jesus to that very church were comforting his heart when he was enduring so much suffering and persecution throughout his life. And so now we find this man, Polycarp, in the year 156 A.D. So it's about 80 years, or 56, uh, no, 60 years after John writes this letter to Smyrna. But this is what was written about Polycarp. There seemed to be uh, a man named Germanicus, in the city of Smyrna that gets, uh, that dies. And people in the city are enraged against the atheists. Now when you say atheists, it's the people who don't believe in the Roman gods. Those are the atheists. So when you, when you hear this account, it's, we use it totally different in our generation. But the atheists were referred to as the Christians, those who didn't believe in the Roman gods. So, this man Germanicus dies, and it stirs the crowd. The crowd of spectators cry out, down with the atheists, get Polycarp, the bishop in the city. He's maybe the ringleader. And so, as the crowd, the the mass, turns to go get Polycarp, Polycarp uh, assistants and, 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 and people around him So they say, go into hiding. And so they hide Polycarp in numerous homes around Smyrna. In that time, he has a vision from God that he was going to be burned alive. So he has this vision. But then they seized two young men from his own household and tortured them into confession. The sheriff, called Herod, which I thought was funny, was impatient to bring Polycarp to the stadium. So here's his arrest. The police and horsemen came with young men at supper time on the Friday with their usual usual weapons as if coming against a robber. That evening, they found him, Polycarp, lying in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped, but he refused, saying, God's will be done. When he heard that they had come, he went down and spoke with them. They were amazed at his age. He was 86 years old. They were amazed at his age and steadfastness, and some, some of them said, why did we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? Immediately he called for food and drink for them. Immediately Polycarp calls for food for his arresters. Food and drink gives them, and he asks them for an hour to pray. You can arrest me, but can I please pray for an hour before you do? Uninterrupted. They agreed, and he stood and prayed so full of the grace of God that he could not stop for two hours. The men were astounded, and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. When he finished praying, they put him on a donkey, and they took him to the city. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp on hearing this. He tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium. And gesturing towards them, he says, Down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul. Reproach Christ and I will set you free. Here's his response. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul goes on, I have animals here, I will throw them to you. If you do not repent, call them, Polycarp replied. It's a, it is unthinkable for me to repent, repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though to be changed from evil to righteousness If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring whatever you want. So a fire is prepared. When the pile was ready, they went to fix him with nails, and he says, leave me as I am, for he... Gives, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And so they simply bound him hands behind, uh, with his hands behind him like a distinguished ram chosen from a great flock of sacrifice. Ready to be an acceptable burnt offering to God, he looked up to heaven and says, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we've received the knowledge of you the God of angels, powers in every creature, and all of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be remembered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Amen. He prays this. The fire was lit, and the flames burned furiously. Those who were privileged to witness it saw a great miracle. This is why they have been preserved, to tell the story. The fire shaped itself into the form of an arch, like a sail of a ship, then filled with the wind. There we go. And formed a circle around the body of the martyr. Inside it, he looked not like flesh that is burnt, but like bread that is baked, or gold and silver glowing in a furnace. We smelled a sweet scent like frankincense to some of our, uh, or some other precious spices. Eventually, those wicked men saw that this body could not be consumed by fire. They commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. When he did this, such a great quantity of blood flowed that the fire was distinguished. The crowd was amazed. And it says, this is the story of the blessed Polycarp, the 12th martyr of Smyrna." What a story, what a story. But it takes one that sees that in the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, suffers, suffering is so much different in the kingdom of God, it illuminates who God is. It opens us up to his heart. It opens us up to other people. It opens us up to his will. When you might go through a wilderness experience, it's in those moments that you may not hear God's voice as clearly as you may once have had. You may not be kind of getting all the juice that you may have had in reading your Bible. But what God is after one thing in those moments, and it's your heart. He wants all of it. And I think that sometimes we, we can say, God, I've given you all my heart. But God has a knowledge about you that you don't even have. And he brings in life circumstances to pull greatness out of you, to pull his image out of you. So that no matter what is going on around you, you are faithful to him. You represent him in your patience, in your endurance, in your love and compassion for ungodly people that may hate you, want to revile you, want to kill you. But there's the spirit of Jesus that pushes back on that spirit to say, I am not coming under that spirit. I'm under the spirit of God. You've got to get under mine. What a witness. And may that be said of us in this generation. Not that you and I might be martyred like Polycarp, but... That you and I would be found faithful. That when we meet God face to face, he would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You endured to the end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we put our eyes on this church in Smyrna today. And God, we recognize that, Lord, the persecution over your true church has always been there. God, it's not a new thing. It's an ancient thing. And Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to endure, give us hearts to endure, give us uh, lives that mirror that of your son Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would put a resilience inside of us that no matter what knocks on our door or comes at us or got any attack of the enemy, Father, that we would be found as your people, faithful to the end, relying on one another for strength, for encouragement. Father, relying on the body. When we're getting kind of this kind of resistance, Father, I pray that you'd open up our reliance on one another, our interdependence upon one another. God, we can't live the life of faith that you've called us to at the level that you've called us to alone, in isolation. God, we need one another. And so I pray that, Lord, in this next season, God, we'd come together. Lord, if there's any of us suffering, if there's any of us in pain, God, that we would flex and, God, be who you are to that person, who you are to that family. God, to be who you are to this world. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are steadfast and faithful to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.